You're listening to Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board, a podcast about life through the lens of music. Welcome to the show. My name is Jay Mack in St. Louis. And this is Sam Wade out in Nashville, Tennessee. And Sam, I'm really excited to start on doing this week's show. This is going to be a really fun episode. We're going to maybe get a little more obscure than normal than we normally do, but this we're going to do one of our album reviews. We we haven't done one of those in a while. It, it has been a while, and you know, J Mac, when we do these these things where we talk about a record or we talk about an artist, you know, I just want to remind our listeners that you know we're just kind of hanging out. Uh, talking about uh, music that's influenced us. So this is not going to be like an exhaustive biography or anything like that, but we're just going to get into why their music is is cool. So I'm looking forward to it as well. Yeah, and if you have any comments or questions or things you'd like to get off your chest, you can look us up on Facebook at Two Tape Decks Podcast. I would like to remind our listeners that every Wednesday on pretty much all major streaming services, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, stuff like that, there's a new episode drops as well as on Saturdays, a little little mini episode which we call b-sides which we take a diversion from like a like a full show and maybe just talk about something that then only we could think of maybe five to ten minutes worth of conversation to do about it this week we are going to talk about one of our personal heroes larry norman we did an episode an icon series about him it was i think was our first icon series yeah that was a while ago now yeah so we're now going to look at Probably my favorite Larry Norman album, which is so long ago, The Garden. Now, if if you're not familiar with this, I really encourage you to go to Spotify or YouTube or iTunes and look up Larry Norman, So Long Ago, The Garden. This is the, my favorite Larry Norman album. It's got my favorite Larry Norman song on it, but I'm not going to tell you what that is right off the bat. Sam, you introduced me to this album probably, what was it, 20, 30 years ago? About 30 years ago, you introduced me to this album. That sounds about right. I think I first heard of this record, I want to say it was probably in 93, right around that time period. Yeah. It came out, it, didn't it come out in 73? Like 73. Right so you, you found out about it 20 years after its release date. You know, I think it's a high watermark for Larry Norman uh, in his catalog. It's probably one of my favorite records uh, of his. It's really close to only visiting this planet, like which is part of that, uh, the whole thing that he was doing with MGM. Um you know, it's part of the trilogy, which also includes um, the third record in another land. Um, but I think that this is probably one of his most compelling and awesome albums. It's certainly one of his most commercial albums in the sense that he, you know, he was known as a Jesus rocker. But there's, there's not really. I don't believe the name Jesus is name dropped on any of these songs, and not to take away from it or anything. That's why it's stuck with me longer than some of the other ones is my beliefs have kind of come and gone with the church and things like that. But I like it because I can listen to it and I, I don't feel like I'm being preached at where some of his other stuff, it's definitely religious based. And I and I don't I have no problem with that. Well, you know, I mean he he was an artist that, that liked to stand on a soapbox and I think he understood the the power of message in the music. Um, but I agree on this album. Um, it's a little bit more, it's, it's definitely more of a mainstream album. I mean, it would sit right on, uh, the turntable, uh, right next to anything that was coming out at that time period in 73. Like you could follow it up by playing a Led Zeppelin record, like some Jimi Hendrix or anything like that. 
And there's some really, really cool songs hidden within this this album. I feel like this might be in my top 20 for if I, if I was like stranded on an island. This one is... Oh, really? Like, like I said, it's right up there with some of my all-time favorite records. You mentioned Zeppelin, maybe... A Zeppelin number one is probably my favorite Zeppelin record. I would put, I would stack this up. I would stack this up with a lot of my classic rock favorites from that era. And Larry passed a few years ago, and I think he would be, I think he'd be happy to think, know that people are still talking about this record because this record influenced my songwriting as a teenager probably more than any other record. And you shared it with me, and that's how we kind of bonded early on with music was over Larry Norman and the Beatles. It's so true. And, you know, I think the, you know, part of the reason that we're excited to talk about this album too is that we really want people to go out and check it out for themselves and kind of spend some time with it. You know, one of the things, uh, like we kind of hit on it that, that Larry could be a controversial artist and, and just a guy in general. And this record is not uh, lost on the controversy <laughs> just right from the album cover alone. Um, it features a, a, a self-portrait of him. It looks like he's completely nude on the cover, but um, kind of faded into the background is the image of a lion. So instead of, you know, it's like, can you actually see more of him than you want to see or not? It's kind of hinted at, uh, and but it still is is a cool kind of like controversial cover. I want to say I read somewhere that, like you know some some places wouldn't put it on the shelves at the time. I did hear that you know, they were kind of scared of that, you know. Um, but it's a good way to get people to to like listen to it. And, like you know, I'm thinking of some of the crazy album covers that are out there. This this definitely is is a solid record cover. Well, I remember I was reading the liner notes earlier today, and and Larry's direction to view the album cover correctly is to view it in bright sunlight. I think he's I think he's He's proud of it, I'll say that. But yeah, I mean, in, fi- in fact, the CD version cuts off around the waist, so you so you don't yeah. see. They, I guess, that for whatever reason, they felt like the full Monty was a little too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it you know it, it ties into some of the themes that are on the record. So, I mean, the record is loosely has some themes that center around uh, the myth of Adam and Eve. Yeah. So the front cover, I think, is the idea that, you know, that he's naked in the garden like Adam and Eve were. And when you flip it over on the backside, there's um, like this mirrored floor and it's a close up of someone in snake boots. You just see like the the snake boot. And then there's an apple um, sitting next to the snake boot that has a bite out of it. So, I mean, it's not you don't have to go for uh, far to like know, you know, all of that uh, imagery is somehow tied to like the serpent in the garden. I think most people at, at least know the, the idea of the whole, you know, original sin kind of thing. And, you know, there's, there's some of that on this record and it gets dark at, at, at some points too, in the, in the lyrics and in the music. Well, and this was also recorded at air studios in London. If I'm not mistaken, weren't there some other famous artists and musicians that recorded at air, air studios in London? Well, absolutely. You know, Air Studios, for our listeners that are not familiar with it, is the studio that George Martin created and started. I believe when Larry was making this record, reportedly Wings was in the next room uh, recording, and apparently Paul McCartney was working on uh, Live and Let Die. And I guess maybe they could kind of hear some of that, you know, when they were out in the hallway. Um, But certainly there's been a lot of amazing records done at Air 
some of uh, only only visiting this planet was was recorded there as well. Well, that's uh, that's our Beatles tie-in there. George Martin, of course, was the the longtime producer of the Beatles. This is probably the most Beatles vibe of any of Larry's records, and maybe that's why I like it so much. Well, I think we should jump in, jump to one of the songs because I actually have another Beatles tie-in uh, with this record that maybe you didn't know about. Um, I got, I can't figure, I don't know what to say. I'm speechless. <laughs> well, I think one of our, you know, one of the strongest songs on this record, and I'm going to wager it's it's probably maybe both of our favorites from the album, or at least up in the up in the top of it, is this song uh, "Lonely by Myself." Right. That was the song that really hooked me to Larry. That that and um, I got to learn to live without you. This is where the Beatle thing comes in, very Beatley. And this yeah. was this was one of the few songs I ever completely learned on piano. This walk down, this this cool walk down on this song. It's definitely uh, this this brooding song. It's it's a uh, it's a classic blues chord progression. Um, there's a cool walk down on the piano, and and there's a great Hammond organ all through it. There's a Mellotron used on the song as well. Did you know that that Mellotron that they used on that song is the same Mellotron the Beatles used on Strawberry Fields Forever? Holy shit. That's crazy, dude. How cool is that? How many people can say that? Probably not too many, that, they, that they've got the Mellotron from Strawberry Fields on their, on their recording. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's not crazy to think about at that time period, especially if he's working out of Air Studios, and and maybe they that was still at Abbey Road, and they did a session there. I'd have to look and, and actually see, but it's not it's not wild and crazy to think about it. I mean, this gear was expensive at the time period. I mean, a Mellotron itself is an is an, is is an amazing sounding instrument, but it's it takes a lot of uh, upkeep to keep all the tape loops. You know, basically. Okay, let me let me just talk about real quick what a Mellotron even yeah, is. Yeah, explain to me what it is, because I don't even know what it is. Okay, so it was like a forerunner to um sampled instruments. You know, so now you get you you can download a, a VST and you can suddenly have some classic synthesizer that you can play on your MIDI keyboard in your DAW. You even have like the like the music that uses samples. The Mellotron was a really, really early incarnation of this type of instrument. And what they did was each key on on the piano keyboard. So it had a piano keyboard. Yeah. In each key, when you held down one of those keys, there was actually a physical tape loop inside the housing of this thing that would play for each separate note where they would Whoa. go and they would record like here's the C on a flute and here's a D on a flute and here's an E and here's a you know an F and a G. And then each octave in each note would have a corresponding key so there would be like you know if there was like 50 or 60 i don't remember what the note is or how what the note count is but let's just say there was like 50 different notes that you could play on the keyboard there was 50 different tape loops with each of those notes in there and whenever you press down the key it would start a motor and it would play that tape loop so that's how they were able to get some of these sounds like the strings and there's a a choir a radiohead use a Mellotron a lot with the choir sound on uh, OK Computer. The Beatles used it on Starbreak Fields. David Bowie used it on Space Oddity. Led Zeppelin used it for the for like a lot of their string arrangements. It's all over rock music, especially. So these things require a lot of upkeep and maintenance because the tape can stretch out, the motors sure. can break. So my point is, is like it's not crazy to think that they would have one of these pieces of gear, but how cool is it? That the actual one that they used on Starberry Fields, he got to use on this tune. And it's a killer, killer song. 
Well, I want to talk about the album opener, Fly, Fly, Fly. Now, this is a really catchy song. I can't help but think if this would have been dropped like on a on a radio station in 1973 that it would have that it would have charted pretty well. Very catchy song. Little little Van Morrison. Maybe a little Oh, totally. Yep. Yeah. And it's it's and that's not a slide. It's a really good song. And I just kind of wonder if Larry would have got the push behind him of marketing where maybe a song like this would have went in the stratosphere of, of the nineteen early nineteen seventies. It's got the vibe that it, it definitely could have charted. And funny enough, um I think it was originally supposed to be a B side, and the record company was like, No, you're putting that on the record. <laughs> Rightfully so. They should have made it a single, though, my opinion. I agree. You want me to get to my very favorite all-time Larry Larry Norman song? Absolutely. Track number four, Be Careful What You Sign, is so flippin' weird, yeah. dude. This, this is psychedelic. It's trippy. There's a weird, like, fiddle that goes through it. All I got to say is look it up. I can't describe this song. It's basically the, it's basically the story of a guy kind of coming to terms. He makes it like a deal with the devil, basically, kind of is what he does. And yep. let's just say it doesn't go well at the end. But this song is just the atmosphere of this song, the bass line, the weird percussion, the fiddle going on to it, the, the wah guitar. Folks, look it up. Go to Spotify or, or YouTube. Larry Norman, be careful what you sign. This stands up to anything that was going on at the time. This could have been on a Pink Floyd record. This could have been on a, like one of the later day Beatle records. Excellent, ex- and the songwriting is incredible too. Let's not overlook that Larry Norman was a very good songwriter. It wasn't just all gimmicks with this guy. This guy, it was an incredible lyricist. I would, I would like to have been a fly on the wall while they were recording this song because this song is, is just amazing. You know, I think this song, the the way that I read it. It's almost like a little novella, like a like a western. Um, it actually, I I could have seen it. I I could see it having been used in Westworld at, at some point. The way that it has this this imagery, it, it talks about you know walking down a road and bumping into some shadowy figure, and he's got a gun and he shoots the guy in the head and then throws him in the alleyway, leaves him for dead, and and uh, and then like it, they they go to like some party where they had. Uh, dinner at eight and women at nine and the party was great till they ran out of wine and it just like has this whole thing and then he ends up like hanging from a gallows i mean it is a great story song kind of like an outlaw country kind of a yeah thing. i mean it almost could have been like i would have liked to have heard johnny cash or waylon jennings or willie nelson yep. kind of give it once again great song i can't say enough Every time I hear this song, I got to stop and listen to the whole thing. I can't just listen to a part of the song, and that's the mark of a great song. And the thing is, it's not a single. It's just it's too weird, but it's it's got this vibe to it that is unmatched in any other of Larry Norman's work, in my opinion. I completely agree with you, and it is definitely I would say it's in one of my top favorite Larry Norman songs. In fact, talking about that song is a whole reason that we even talk about Larry Norman at all. It's one of those songs where like it's it proves and solidifies he was a great songwriter, he was a great performer, he was a great lyricist and I agree this this track could stack up to you know anything that was coming out at the time. Well, you want to pick out the next track we're going to we want to talk about? Well, you know one of the songs that that stands out for me on this record too is the song called Broken Spirits. 
Baroquean spirits, like the Baroque time period, which is a clever play on words that you you don't really get to see it spelled out. Yeah, so it's spelled like the the Baroque uh, era, Baroquean spirits, and it's you know it's it's one of those tracks too that um, I mean it, it definitely has the top forties feel. I, I think a track like this might have been more successful as a single if it had been released five years sooner than when the record came out. Like it, it's almost like a carryover from like that psychedelic era. I could see that, but it's definitely a great track on there. You've always referenced this song. If we were going to do a cover with "Tomorrow Never Knows," our side musical project, that you you imagine it like a Foo Fighter song with the with the quiet parts, then with the really where it gets real heavy. Don't give away all my ideas, J Max. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. No, but totally, it is. It, it's it's one of those songs that it has like it it has several different sections that flow into each other, and um, it just really pushes along really well and it has like a big soaring chorus so yeah I, I think it could be translated into rock music fairly easily yeah it does have that kind of soft loud thing going on and the drum the drums in this song i was listening to it today on on vinyl i've got the mgm pressing the drums are really they really make this song it's like i can see dave Grohl or taylor hawkins really taking a bite out of this it's pretty cool i love it well speaking of drummers you know um on this record um at least for part of the sessions i don't know if you played on the whole album or not but there's a, a pretty great drummer that played on this uh, album the dude from king crimson wow. uh, michael giles played on this record yeah wow like, it's a it's a legit uh, uh album man i'm gonna move along to side two I'm, I'm dividing it into halves like we're like we're listening to a record Side two opens with Christmas time, which is a really great rock song. And the the lyrics are really smarmy and smart ass, which is, which is why I love <laughs> basically it, the song is basically talking about the commercialization of Christmas, where I guess, at least in Larry's view, it should have been more Christ centric. He does have a, a point about commercial, the commercialization of Christmas. I think of Charlie Brown's Christmas where, Snoopy's decorating his house, his dog house, and Charlie Brown goes, oh, <laughs> even my dog. So, but it's like you go into the forest and you cut down all the trees. It's Christmas time. I know you got a power saw, but who plants the seeds? It's Christmas time. Just really smart ass lyrics. And I was listening, the vinyl version is different than the CD version, not to get too obscure on people. The vinyl version is better. It's it's more rock oriented. And Larry's vo- vocals just just tear through. It's really good. Well, this is one of those songs, too, that's not the first version of it either. Did you know that? Didn't Randy Stonehill do a version? It's pretty much Randy Stonehill's song. Like, it, he recorded it. He did a he did a record um, early on um, called Born Twice, and there's a version of it on there, but it's it's not as fully realized as the version that's on Salongo the Garden. I think the the version on this record is, is superior. I think it's a much better produced song. Um, but I guess it was hanging around for a while. I mean, they're both credited as songwriters, but I just love how sarcastic. Oh yeah, it's like one of the best Christmas songs that I've ever heard because you know, you know, you Christmas time. It's it's easy. Uh, and I mean, I'm going to sound like a Scrooge here, but it's easy to kind of get tired of hearing the same Christmas songs over and over and over again. And and uh, you know, when do they put the Christmas stuff out? You know, to buy is it like in the summertime? Does it start? there you know it, it it definitely gets into like the marketing and kind of the idea of getting lost of the spirit of the season getting lost i guess um but it's just a great ruckus track 
I do agree with that because at the time that I was introduced to this, I was working at a place called Frank's Nursery and Crafts. And if you can imagine a craft store with a plant nursery <laughs> at Christmas time, it was Christmas trees and Christmas ornaments and Christmas crafts. And I remember I remember driving my old 84 Grand Marquis and I had the I had a cassette tape and I was playing that song in my car and I was just thinking as I was going to work what a miserable day it was going to be because I was going to be it opened at like seven o'clock. It was wall-to-wall people screaming, crabbing, coughing, sneezing, bitching. This is supposed to be the Christmas season, and everybody was in a foul mood. And I remember just going to work and thinking of that song where the, the line of the song where Larry Norman goes, I got to buy a present, can't remember who it's for, but I'll see you <laughs> in an hour when I get back from the store. It's just the chaos of Christmas. That was almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy for him, too, when he had his um, head injury and like would go out wandering around for hours, forget what he was doing. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> even think about And then come about- back from like going stopping by at the record store. I didn't even think about that, dude. I didn't even think about that. But like even, even, though, even though the religious thing is definitely not something I, I necessarily subscribe to, I appreciate the sentiment of Larry in this song. It should be about giving, whether it's it's whether it's God giving his only son or giving a present to someone you care about or love. It shouldn't be about materialism. And Larry really, he really cuts it off at the knees in this song, which is why. And I, I you know what? I would I would love to hear like a punk rock version of this. I think it would be really great. Oh, yeah. I could totally hear like, I don't know, like uh, like social distortion. Doing oh, my song. God. Yeah, that would be great. That would be great. <laughs> or how about how about bad religion? That would sound great like that, for sure. Can you just imagine Johnny Rotten at the height of the Sex Pistols thing, screaming out, <laughs> Gotta die, pressure, get it's fall! Be awesome, dude. You know, I agree with you. Love it. Uh, we might have to, like, explore that. I love it. You want to pick the next song, bro? Well, I think we should talk about uh, she, uh, She's a Dancer. Oh, my God, yes. This is one of those moments on the record where it could almost be like a Paul McCartney kind of composition. It kind of sits in that that vibe of, of centering around like minor chords and has a really beautiful string arrangement that goes with it. And, uh, you know, it, it gets a little sappy, but I think it's a really beautiful track. What do you think? I got to confess, I bought a classical guitar when I was about 20. And that was one of the first songs I learned. I believe it's an A minor. That's what I picked it out. I remember it, it was an A minor. And I, here's a little window into J Mac's uh, personal life. I was dating my my soon to be wife, and we went to Flow Valley, which is actually, you know where it is. I'm not I'm, I'm not going to give too specifics, but it's Florson Valley College, <laughs> and there was a little there's a little common ground. And I took my we were having a picnic, and I brought my classical guitar. And while we were eating our sandwiches, or while my lady was eating her sandwich, I got out the guitar and played "She's a Dancer" for "Under the Trees." Pretty romantic stuff, Aww. I got to tell you. Yeah. I can dig that, man. Did it Did it work? Oh, she was already in love with me, but it didn't hurt. I'll say that. <laughs> it was like Buttercup and Wesley and Princess Bride, as you wish. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty cool idea, man. Um, I think it's a great track. It, it's just really, you know, it's a, it's a really solid, uh, you know, uh, entry on this album for sure. But I will say this. It, there's a strange feel to it. It's beautiful and strange. That's what I wrote down in my notes here. Beautiful and strange. But strange is good. I love strange. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, I got the door song playing in my head. 
Uh, I dig it, man. It makes me think of the Lost Boys soundtrack when you say people are strange. You know what I'm talking about? It has that that version of it by uh, Echo and the Bunnymen. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a great song. Great movie, too. I love that movie. Yeah, really is. Soul Survivor, the one the one note I had on Soul Survivor is listen to the bass line on this song. It's not it's not the standout track of the album for me, but it's good. It is. And you know, as as we're like breaking down each song, you know, this is one of those records where you could get distracted by like how great each of these songs are. But it really is an album that holds together really well if you listen to it straight through. Now, I know that there's been like I think three different versions of this that have at least three different versions that have come out over the years with like different track orders and slightly different mixes on the songs but i think you know one of the reasons why we chose this record is that it, it is one of those records that all the songs flow together pretty well like it's not a long listen um but it kind of takes you on a journey as a listener and it I, I think I would encourage people to listen to it straight through for sure. The album is nine tracks long. The CD version has a few bonus tracks on it, but the album, the full album is nine songs and it ends probably on the weirdest thing Larry Norman ever did, which is on the, on the MGM release it's just called nightmare, but in subsequent releases, it's called nightmare, nightmare 71. It's basically wrapping up the whole album. It kind of tells the story of, a dream that he supposedly had where all these different characters from history and politics are coming to him. How do you interpret this? Because I could be, ter- it could be interpreted a lot of different ways, but this is definitely where he's like saying we've, we've fallen so <laughs> far from the garden of Eden. I don't know, man. I, this is one of those tracks. I mean that it, the, like the lyrics are definitely apocalyptic. Yeah. I think he had to be listening to a lot of Bob Dylan and being like, what the fuck are these lyrics about? And then he put together like this crazy like fever dream of a of a lyric of like these crazy things thrown together. Maybe they made sense to him. Maybe they just sounded cool to say. But it sounds like a drug trip, this song. Like it's crazy. When the marionette of Harpo Marx asks if he's ever thought of having Helen Keller in his dreams, that's pretty strange, dude. Yeah, I just want to know, was this song written before or after American Pie? <laughs> I don't know, but I wrote I wrote down Dylan in my Dylan question mark in my notes because it's it's the most convoluted thing Larry ever did. There's no real. It's awesome. No, it is. Don't get me wrong. It's weird, but you're right. It is convoluted. And by the way, it was after American Pie. You know the song that people are like, "Well, who's the jester in the song, and who's it really talking about?" I think that he was writing a song like that. Like, I'm just gonna like just just go crazy with these lyrics and make people kind of wonder what this really means, which, you know, it's kind of like the book of revelations where it's this, this, this weird hodgepodge of like imagery that you don't exactly, there's so many different ways to interpret it. And this is definitely one of those songs. Like ch- check out this. I- I'm just doing like a random pull out of this song Okay, with the continents adrift and the sun about the shift will the ice caps drown us all, or will we burn? We've polluted what we own. Will we reap what we have sown and we're headed for the end or can we turn? How relevant is that right now? <laughs> Religious imagery aside, he nailed it, dude. This is, song is so relevant now. Will the ice caps drown us all or will we burn? Dude, we're still yeah. asking that same question right now. And there's the line about while Hoover played with the motorcade, the body slumped and bled. I got to go listen to it again, once again, because there's so much in this song. It's hard to like take it all in at one point. Even if it was maybe influenced by other tracks, that other people had done what isn't and this song 
This song, if, if you've never heard a Larry Norman song, listen to this song because this will make you go, how have I never heard of this guy? I totally agree, J-Mac. Like, this is a gem that's just sitting there. Like, I don't, I, I'm not going to go on record as saying it's like this amazing, like one of the most amazing albums of all time that no one's ever discovered. It's not that. But there is some really, really good stuff that's worth taking the time um, to listen to this record, for sure. Don't shortchange yourself, people. Go listen to this record. So long ago, The Garden, Larry Norman. It's, I mean, any, you can Google it. It's, it's very easily accessible. But once again, if you stack this up to the music of the time, it holds up. And I can't say that that's the, the same would hold true for a lot of the other Christian musicians and, and artists of that time period. I don't know how you feel about it, but this this is definitely a high watermark for, for Christian music in the 70s. Well, yeah, I totally agree with that. But I I wouldn't even put it in the context of other Christian artists because I, I actually feel that's a little bit unfair because there really wasn't um, an industry at the time like this this still in 1973 when this record came out like there really wasn't that that kind of contender at the time I mean, there was a few bands playing i think love song was around at that time second chapter of Axe. second chapter of Axe, and i think it was right about that time that phil keggy was leaving glass harp and you know what i mean so there really wasn't uh i want to say keith green was active at this time and but even aside, you know, from kind of the the bad name that Christian artists uh, get, I'm just looking, you know, at how many different records came out that year, and this one, I'm sure it got spun on on some on some radio stations at the time. Sure. You know, I mean, it, it's it's a solid record made with great personnel. The players are ace on this album. They obviously put some money in it. It was released on on MGM. Um, I'm not sure how many copies were pressed, but it's enough that you can still find copies of it floating around the internet or at, or at uh, record stores. It's just a really solid rock album. It's got shades of blues rock. It's got a little bit of some jazzy rock. It's got like some um, Baroque pop mixed into it, some psychedelia. Um, and it's just really, really, it's got some soul uh, mixed in with there. And it's just, it's a really good album. Well, I would say, as you referenced earlier in the show, the trilogy of of only visiting this planet so long ago, the garden and in another land. This one is really the standout for me. I feel like they're all, they're all three great albums and, and definitely on their own, on their own merit, they should be taken as such. But this is, this is what I feel like that Larry was at his peak and and, and we can have a healthy disagreement about it. I'm sure if I, if, I, if people who listen to this want to, want to disagree with me, that's fine. I, I love talking about Larry Norman this album influenced me so much in the way I viewed the world. I was in my late teens at the time that I discovered this album. So I was going through a lot of the whole brokenhearted shit that teenage kids go through. I felt out of place and I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. And I, I identified with Larry and specifically this album. And it's so funny that now what, like 30 years later, we're sitting here talking about this album, or at least 25 years later, talking about this album on a podcast that people around the world listen to. It's pretty pretty awesome. It is, man. But before we head out, I just wanted to kind of just mention some of the other records that came out this year. Oh my God, 1973 was a monumental year for music, dude. Like, listen to what he was stacked up against um, for this record. There are some iconic classic albums in here that I'm not going to say it's better than, but I still think it... F- it hangs with these. Now I'll read these off and you tell me J Mac, if you think that it still stands up to it. Nin- 1973. So we got dark side of the moon. 
Um, Inner Visions by Stevie Wonder, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, Elton John, Quadrophenia, the the the, the Who, pronounced Leonard Skinnerd. Uh, Let's Get It On came out that year. Call Me by Al Green, Catch a Fire by Bob Marley, Band on the Run, the first uh, New York Dolls record came out. Raw Power with with the Stooges, um, Houses of the Holy. There goes Ryman Simon, Aladdin Sane. I mean, and the list just goes on. I mean, what an amazing Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath came out the same year. Just crazy. This, 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 this whole list of albums. Now, again, I don't know that it's like, you know, if it's one of the best albums ever made, but I still think listening those records, there is a place among those records that came out where it's not something that could be overlooked. It, it can hold its own with that with that group. You got to go listen to this album. Trust me, this is one of those buried albums that if you're not familiar with Larry, you're gonna it's gonna blow your mind. It's gonna blow your mind. To this day, I mean, I like I said, I I have I had the vinyl upstairs. I listened to it this this afternoon before I came down into the show, and I was amazed at how well it, it held up. And 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 I've got all those albums that you mentioned in my collection, and I spin them all frequently. And it is. Yep. It fits. It's not. It's not the redheaded stepchild of that era. It fits in with all that stuff. It does. So, do yourself a favor. Go jump on. Uh, just go to your local record store. See if you can dig, dig up a copy of Larry Norman's "So Long, so Long of the Garden." Find it on eBay, or stream it on one of the streaming services that are out there and listen to the record straight through. I think you'd be surprised. For another fantastic episode of Two Tape Decks and a Mixing Board, my name is Jay Rack. And my name's Sam Wade. Saying until next week, stay cosmic. cosmic. <laughs>